Good morning, church family. If you're not already there, turn to Exodus chapter 2. We'll start at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed." And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the, the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now... 
Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot going on in the text. Amazing passage of scripture as we come to the end of chapter 2 and uh, the beginning of chapter 3 of Exodus. Obviously one of the most famous scenes in the whole Bible, Moses at the burning bush. And uh, this scene is fascinating and important for many reasons. We got to go fast. So three things that I want to talk to you about today that we see in this text. The nature of God, an experience with God, and the call of God. Let's talk about the nature of God. Now, I shouldn't do what I'm about to do, but I, I, I kind of can't help myself when you come to a text like this. Uh, John Calvin in his very famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he, he gave this warning. He said, if anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity and he will enter a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. And so I'm about to take you into the labyrinth that Calvin is warning against here. Uh, but it's an important labyrinth uh, in uh, Scripture and it's this tension that exists in the Bible, in the biblical narrative between God's sovereignty, God's reign, God's rule, and the free and meaningful choices that human beings seem to be making. Again, it's elaborate. Calvin says your curiosity will never fully be satisfied with this because you really can't fully understand the mind of God. But I wanna talk about this because it's important to understand this passage. Genesis 15. Way back when God was making his covenant with Abraham, God said to Abraham, if you've ever read Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, again, this is hundreds of years before these events occurred here in Exodus chapter 3, God says to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They'll be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. This is God to Abraham. Again, this is generations before they went to Egypt. This is, of course, hundreds of years before they came out of Egypt. And basically God is saying, I'm going to take them to Egypt. I'm going to bring your offspring out of Egypt. And, and what we reread here, they're going to plunder the Egyptians. They're, uh, they're going to be blessed by the Egyptians, way back in Abraham. And of course, along the way, even though God said this here in Genesis 15, along the way we see people making real and meaningful choices that ultimately led to these events. The interesting thing is too, is a lot of the choices were actually evil choices or sinful choices. I mean, how did the uh, people of Israel get to Egypt in the first place? It was because Joseph's brothers totally mistreated him. They, they, tried, they were going to kill him. They sold him off to be a slave. 
How did Moses end up in the household of Pharaoh where, where he could be raised up to be a deliverer like he ultimately would be? It was because Pharaoh was a murderer. He was killing these babies. But in all of these things, in all of these choices, these meaningful choices that people are making, God is working out his sovereign plan. We know from Scripture that God is sovereign. He's not out of control. He rules over all of his creation. Yet we also know that human beings are making real and meaningful choices, choices they're responsible for, choices that fit into God's plan. Now, the other thing that is so interesting about the Christian message that's really unique to Christianity is not only is God above the story, sovereign over the story, he's also very involved in the story. He's, he's engaged. He, he becomes a character in the story. Look at verse 23. This is, again, the end of chapter 2. Look at the language here. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham uh, and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I mean, what, what is this kind of language? God heard, God saw, God remembered, right? Now, this isn't, you're not supposed to think here that God's like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot that the Israelites are still in Egypt. This is not God forgetting the cookies in the oven. This is to say that God is honoring his covenant. He remembered his covenant. He honors, he's honoring here what he had said to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We see the same kind of language in verse 7 of chapter 3. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. You see how this is describing God here? He is sovereign, right? He's transcendent. He's above all of creation, but he's also imminent. He's connected to his story. He's involved in his story. He enters in. He's a part of the story. God becomes a character in this story that he's writing. You know, great novelists or great playwrights often write a little part that is themselves into the story that they're telling. And of course, God does this. Of course, it's a big part. We're, we interact with God within his story in a real and meaningful way. It's the labyrinth. It's hard to understand. But it, it, it's also the, the character and nature of God that gives me enormous comfort and peace. This is the Christian position, that God is sovereign, but that we are responsible. That God is sovereign, but he responds to our actions, to the prayers, requests, and the needs of man. And it's this responsiveness of God that's so unique to Christianity that, that again, is kind of strange. He's transcendent. He's above his creation, but he's imminent. He's involved in his creation. He's sovereign. He has a plan. He reigns. He rules. Yet, He's so responsive. And to deny either, to deny either of those things would actually be to deny what the Scripture tells us. It's a labyrinth. Your curiosity in this will never be totally satisfied. But it's incredibly comforting. It's actually the thing that motivates you to a life of peace. If God, if everything were totally predetermined, if God were not responsive as we see in Scripture then we wouldn't do anything. I mean, why do anything? We'd be frozen in total apathy. We'd have no motivation or reason to act. But if God didn't do, every, it didn't do anything, if he left everything up to our free choices, we would equally be frozen. 
I want to prove it to you. If you were here last week, I told you the story about how I went to a Greek class one day. And if you didn't come last week, you can listen to the sermon. I went to my Greek class one day. And because of that, I mean, the going to that one class set off a chain of events that totally altered the whole course of my life. It, it, it ultimately led a chain of events that led me to meet Paige, that ultimately led me to come plant this church. This one little decision, going to a Greek class one day, totally changed my entire life. Now, if I believed that I was totally self-determined, that God didn't have plans that were above mine and ways that were above mine. If I believed that my choices were totally, totally self-determined, you know what? I would be totally frozen. I would be terrified to make any decision at all because every little decision, I mean, if I do this, what's going to happen? I'd have to work through all the possible implications, of course, which I can't know because I don't have enough knowledge to know those things. I'd be totally frozen. If everything was determined and my choices meant nothing, I'd be frozen. If nothing was determined and my choices meant everything, I'd be equally frozen. The Bible gives us this wonderful balance that's equally motivating toward action, toward the purposes of God, toward obedience to God, and comforting. The people cry out to God. He responds. But before they were ever born, God told Abraham, I will send them to Egypt. I will bring them out and they will plunder the Egyptians. There's more to say there, but I've got to move on. That's the nature of God. Second, what about an encounter with God? And this is incredibly important also. Moses illustrates this really well for us. It's a really great case study in what it really means to encounter God. Augustine, the great church father, incredibly important in the history of the church, he writes a lot about what it really means to know God, what it means to have an encounter with God. And he basically says, you, you can't fully know God unless you know yourself. And you can't really know yourself unless you know God. And, and, and what Augustine's appealing to here is there is a form in the universe. There is something that is right and whole. It is God. God is the form that is right, that is whole, that is complete. And you can't really understand who you are until you kind of measure up to that form, but you're really not in a position to recognize that form and to see it for its fullness and to see it for its beauty and to see it for all that it is unless you really know yourself. And again, Moses serves as, a, as an incredible case study in this. I mean, think about the life of Moses. He's in a palace. He has everything going for him. He has all this education. He has um, all of this opportunity. And, 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 he, and he somehow knew about God, right? He, he had this God notion. We don't exactly know a lot about Moses' childhood, but we, we looked at this passage last week from Hebrews eleven twenty four. 24. It said that when Moses grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of all of Egypt. So Moses had this fear of the Lord. He, he had some understanding of God. And of course, he went out and identified with his people. He left his palace. He, he did not consider the wealth of Egypt worth the reproach of Christ, worth the reproach of being identified with the people of God. And he went out in his own strength and he killed an Egyptian. Now, interestingly, and we've been talking about this on Our Daily Rhythm this week. Interestingly, though, when Moses kills the Egyptian, he thought that his people, the Hebrew people, would kind of rise up with him, that they would join him, that they would say, oh, this person from the palace has recognized us. We're going to have a revolution against the people of Egypt. But that didn't happen. They rejected him. 
And of course, this is from Acts 7, verse 35. It says, this Moses, who they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent both as a ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now, this is interesting. In Exodus 2, Moses is kind of this self-appointed leader. He goes out in his own strength. He kills this Egyptian. Of course, the people reject him. In Exodus 3, God is sending him. God is appearing to him. He's sending him with power. What happens? <laughs> what happens between Exodus 2 and Exodus 3? And the answer is Midian. Moses is in a place where he has enough knowledge of himself. He has enough self-awareness. He's been humbled. He's been brought low. He has enough knowledge of himself that he can really encounter God. He has enough self-awareness to really know the Lord. He, he knew that he wasn't perfect. He knew he had needs. He knew he was lost. And this is where God really met him. I want you to hear this. You know, A.W. Tozer once wrote this. So it's such a powerful quote. He says, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It's doubtful that the Lord can really bless or use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. God actually rises up storms of conflict in relationships at times in order to accomplish that deeper work in our character. We cannot love our enemies in our own strength. This is graduate level grace. Are you willing to enter this school? Are you willing to take the test? If you pass, you can expect to be elevated to the new level in the kingdom, for he brings us these tests as preparation for greater use in his kingdom. You can't really know God until you know yourself, until you have some self-awareness, until you have some humility. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, it's actually suffering. It's these trials in life that, that give us true Christian happiness, that lead us to the hope that actually won't disappoint us. That teach us how to actually depend on the Lord where true rest and peace and hope is found. You can't really know God until you know yourself, but you can't really know yourself until you know God. It's in this humble place that God reveals himself to Moses. And, and how does God reveal himself to Moses? It's two very important things. There's a statement and there's a fire. <laughs> there's a statement and there's a fire. Let's start with the statement. God, of course, says to Moses, I've heard the cry of the people. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to use you to redeem them. And then Moses says, well, hold on, wait a second. Who are you? What is your name? Who am I supposed to say that you are? What is your name? And God just says, here's the name of God. I am. I am. I am who I am. I am who I am. I depend on no one. I am defined by nothing else. I am known as who I am because I am. Everything else depends on me. I am. Now, Augustine, when he said you, you have to know God to know yourself, he was a little bit meditating on this Greek idea of forms, the theory of forms. There has to be a true form, right? The, the, the true form that everything else is measured by. And that's what God is saying here. <laughs> I am that. I am the true form. I am. I exist. I depend on no one. I am before all things. I am above all things. I am. 
when I was in college, many of you know this, I used to work at the JH Ranch and one of the activities of the JH Ranch is, it's, it, it's kind of hard that we, to believe that we would do this, but we would take these high schoolers and we would give them an orienteering class, okay? Now, this was back in a day when, I mean, I was back there when people actually had seen a map before. Um, so I, I, I can't imagine what's going on out there today, but we would teach these kids how to use a map and a compass, okay? And we would give them a class. We would teach them how to orient a map correctly. And if you've never taken an orienteering class, you've never done a lot of backpacking, the key to backpacking, the key to using a map is orienting the map to how the earth actually is, right? If the, if the map is lined up with how the earth actually is, it's very useful. If it's not, it's incredibly not useful. And actually, it's, it can be damaging. And so we would give them this class. Now, the class, now the, everything at the ranch was fun. There was ropes, there was water, there was slides, there were swings. I mean, everything was fun. It's like the one boring thing that we did was this orienteering class. We would teach them how to use a map and a compass. But it was very important because a few days later, we would put these teams of kids out in the woods with a compass and with a map, and we'd say, find this spot. Now, if they listened in the class, it wasn't hard. In fact, it was only about a two, maybe two and a half hour hike but of course, kids didn't listen. And every year, I mean, every group, we would have years where they'd be out there 10, 11, 12 hours hiking around until finally, you know, their coach would be like, it's this way, you know, this exercise is over, you know, you guys are done. But the, the point is orientation is everything. There, in a map, there's only one true north, right? There's only one way that the map works, the map goes. And if it's not a line like that, it, it doesn't work. And, and that's the, the reality in the whole universe. There's only one true north. There's only one I am. And how your life is oriented to God is everything. God comes to Moses and he says, I am. <laughs> I am the true north. I, I, am, I am the answer to all of your questions. You orient your life this way or you're nothing. And here's the deal. I mean, we live in a world where everyone will say, no, orient your life around this, orient your life around that. This is reasonable. In fact, this is unquestionable. It was very interesting. James Webb Telescope, you're not hearing a lot about this, but we're getting reports. There's cosmology. I don't know if you been seeing, I read a couple articles, but cosmology is in like a total pickle right now because they're getting these images back from the James Webb telescope and a lot of the assumptions, and I'm not gonna give you a whole report on cosmology, but a lot of the assumptions that we have made about the nature of the universe for decades now, cosmologists are saying, wait a second, <laughs> it doesn't line up with the actual evidence that we have now that we have these images from the James Webb Telescope. My point is not cosmology. My point is to say this. Look, we live in a world where there's voices all around you that will say, I am, I am. This is right. This is true. This is unquestionable. <laughs> you have to believe this. If, if you don't believe this, you're wrong. You're an idiot. You're a bigot. But there is only one I am. There's only one true form. There's only one who is truly trustworthy. And you can actually only know yourself when you know him, you can actually only know what you ought to be desiring, what you ought to be passionate about, the, the, the direction that you ought to be going in life when you know 
him. You, you can't really understand him until you come to this point of realization where you realize you're needy, where you've been humbled, where you have a moment of self-awareness, but you can't really know yourself. You can't really know the direction that you need to be moving, the things that you should be desiring unless you know him. We can only know God when we really start to understand our need ourselves, and we can only know ourselves when we really get to know the I am. And he orients your whole life. He, he, when, you, when you encounter him, he is either your true north or you really haven't encountered him. I mean, that's, that's the thing with the experience of God. If you've really experienced God, then that's how you, one of the reasons you know that God has totally reoriented your life. Has that happened to you? Have you been reoriented? So God gives a statement, but he also appears as a fire. Now fire, if you kind of pay attention, fire is an important theme in the Bible. God often shows up with fire. I mean, there's a couple that I mentioned here on the slide. Genesis 15, God appears to Abraham in the pot of fire, Exodus 13, God leads the people of Israel, the pillar of fire, Exodus 19, God descends like a fire. First Kings 19, God gets Elijah in fire. Ezekiel saw God as a fiery shape. Daniel saw him on a throne of fire. The judgment of God is oftentimes depicted as fire. But typically the fire of God, when it's talked about is the consuming fire, it consumes. We think about Hebrews 12. We, we just read this passage for our call to worship. God is a consuming fire. That's what fire does. It consumes whatever it comes upon. Yet here, it's a very interesting picture of the fire. It's not consuming the bush. It doesn't consume the bush. It's there. It's present. It's hot. It's noticeable. It's powerful. Yet the bush isn't consumed. Don't you see what God is doing here? Don't you see the picture? God is coming to Moses with all of this power, with, with all of this strength. He's a fire. And yet he doesn't consume the bush and he doesn't consume Moses. God calls Moses. It's the fire that comes close to Moses and doesn't consume him, but it changes him. It renews him. Moses has been on the run. He's been on the run from Egypt. He's been hiding out in Midian and he's so changed by this encounter that he goes back to Egypt, to Pharaoh and leads this great redemption. He's the fire that comes close and to his servants, to his people does not consume them. You know, even later, Deuteronomy 5, the people of Israel are reflecting on this. God has spoken to them. He's given them his law. He's spoken to them in fire. And he says, and they say, behold, the Lord has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man and still live. You know, that's how we all should respond to God, that he would speak to us and that we could still actually be alive. I don't know that we think about this as deeply as we should. You know, there's two kind of camps. A lot of times people do think about God as this fiery judge that's, that's totally unapproachable. And, 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 and that actually reflects their life and how they worship and how they live. A lot of times those people are incredibly judgmental themselves. They're very angry. They're never at peace. There's a lot of other people that just see God totally as love and there's no judgment. There's no definition to God. There's really no form to God. Neither of these positions are what the Bible shows us. You know, God is a fire. 
He's sovereign. He's God. He's the God of the universe. He's the God who spoke everything into existence. He has complete authority over all things. He defines everything. He has total form. We are the ones who are formless. Yet, he comes close to his covenant people and doesn't consume them. He comes close to his servants and doesn't consume them. The people that he loves, those who have experienced his grace, can hear the word of God coming from the fire and not die. Here's Moses talking to God who's appearing before him. Is this flame and Moses lives, but he's changed. He's not consumed, but he's changed. And that's how you know you've experienced God. That's how you know you're brought into his covenant people. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. That the invitation to you and to me today is the same to Moses, that you can be the child of God, the covenant people of God, brought into his covenant, brought into his family to experience his grace and forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus, the son of God, came and endured the fire for us. Because Jesus endured the consuming fire of God, the judgment of God because of our sin, we now can know God in forgiveness and peace and grace. And this God, this fire of God can come close to you through faith in Jesus and not consume you. And it's actually even better. The fire of God, it's not that, it's not that God's power and fire can just come close to you and not consume you. The fire and the power of God, we read in Scripture, actually indwells those who through faith in Jesus have been made righteous, who through faith in Jesus have been forgiven. God says to Moses in verse 12, I will be with you. How are you going to go to Egypt? I will be with you, which is amazing. And of course, with that power, with that confidence, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he delivers his people, but God, in a sense, says to us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will be in you. I will indwell you. And I think that that should give us pause. That's an amazing thing to believe. You know, in the Old Testament, through much of the history of Israel, the power of God was among the people. The Spirit of God dwelled among the people in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle or in the temple, in the most holy place. The power of God, the presence of God was among the people, but you couldn't really... Get that close to it. <laughs> in fact, only one day a year, the high priest, after a long process of cleansing, just one guy could go in with fear before the presence of God with a rope tied around his ankle just because if he died back there, nobody could go get him and they had to pull him out. And with fear, after all of this cleansing, go near to the throne of God to make atonement for the sin of the people one day a year. That's how... That's how powerful this idea is to be close to the fire of God. Yet I want you to hear this. If you are in Christ Jesus, the blood of Christ has made you so holy. The blood of Christ has made you so pure. The blood of Christ has made you so right and so righteous. You have been forgiven so completely that now not only can you go near the presence of God, literally the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, can indwell your life without killing you. That's an amazing thing to believe. This fire of God comes close to you without consuming you. And actually, it's the fire of God that changes you, that reforms you, that renews you, that empowers you. That's what we saw on the day of Pentecost, right? These people not knowing what to do, these followers of Jesus, Jesus has been taken away from them. They're hiding out in the upper room. And then all of a sudden the spirit of God comes upon them. There's 
fire above their heads, and they're going out in confidence and power. Jesus took on the consuming fire of God to pay the price for your sin, to give you a record of righteousness that is so unblemished, that is so pure, that is so holy, that now in Christ, the very power of God, the fire of God's presence can be with you, can indwell you and not consume you. And that brings me to the final point, which is the call of God. You know, when Moses, when God first said to Moses, um, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, look at verse 7. He says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. When, when Moses first heard that, when that's all he had heard, you got to think he's like, yeah, okay. God has heard our cry. We're going to get this land. It's, there's milk, there's honey. It's going to be amazing. It's broad land. God is going to do this finally. God has heard our cry. And they were ex- he was excited to hear it. When Moses heard this, he was, I'm sure he was, he was pumped. You know, in the same way, when, when you hear the plan of God, I'm sure you're excited. I mean, when somebody says to you, look, God's going to redeem the whole world. That's an exciting thing to hear. God's going to make everything new. Jesus is making all things new. When you hear that Jesus is calling a people to himself, worshipers to himself from every tongue, from every tribe, from every people, from every language. You hear that and you're like, yes, yes, yes. You're just like Moses. But then what does God say to Moses? Verse 10, he says, come, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. (laughs) You're going to do it. I'm going to use you to do it. And, you know, the call, I mean, we, we, we're not going to get there today, chapter 4, but Moses obviously struggles with this. But the call that God was placing on Moses here was really incredible. I mean, it's really unbelievable. You have the most powerful nation in the whole world, and God says, hey, you're going to go there. Pharaoh's going to give up his entire slave force, okay, that's been building all of these great cities for him. You're going to come out here and worship. I mean, that's an amazing thing to believe. Moses thought that he was out in the middle of nowhere because he was out in the middle of nowhere. He says, all these people, these places, you know, these two million people are going to come out here to this mountain. They're going to worship me. I'm going to give them this land where all these other people live. (laughs) I'm going to give them this land that's broad and good. Oh, and by the way, while you're leaving Egypt, these people that have enslaved you, that hate you, they're going to give you a bunch of gold on the way out. I mean, when Moses heard this, I mean, he must have just thought, that's insane. Like, that is impossible. That could never happen. But of course, it's exactly what God did through him. It's exactly how God used him. It's exactly what God said he was going to do to Abraham, and it's exactly what he did through Moses. But I want you to hear this. These plans of God that I just talked about, Every tribe, tongue, nation, God's going to make all things new. You know, he's using to do that. He's using you to do that. The calling is on you. And it's actually, it's actually a more incredible call than even Moses received. You know what God said to all of us? He said to Moses, I want you to go into one nation. 
and I want you to free my people. I want you to call my people out of that nation that hates me. You know what he said to us? He said, I want you guys, I want you to go to every nation. And from every nation, there, I have a people there that I love, that I care about. And just like he said to Moses, they're going to come out here and they're going to worship me around this mountain. He's saying to us, one day, all of these people from all these nations that you're going to free, that you're going to redeem, I'm going to call them around the very throne of God. And you and them, we will be there together worshiping a people of God's possession, this royal priesthood, this, this, this people that God delights in, God's covenant people. God is saying, you're the ones that are going to go free them. From every, from every place, from every nation, from every neighborhood, from, from every village, from, from every town, you're the ones that have this calling on your life. The Lord is calling you to do this, me to do this, to redeem the whole world. If you're in Christ, then the fire of God has come near you and not consumed you to empower you. If you're in Christ, then the I am has come to you to totally reorient your life. Are you listening to his voice? And many years later, Jesus was talking with Pharisees. And these Pharisees had an I am. I mean, they really had an I am, but it wasn't necessarily God, it was Abraham, right? They were anchored on Abraham. Abraham's our father, we're the children of Abraham, we're very proud of that. And Jesus starts talking to him, and he basically says, <laughs> I'm more important than Abraham. I, I, Abraham died, I'm not going to die. And they, they couldn't believe it. They said, what are you, what are you, wait, just to clarify, Jesus, are you saying you're more important than Abraham? And he doubles down. He said, I'll tell you what, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was doing. They knew exactly what he was doing. He was claiming to be God. He was saying, you're so focused on Abraham, but God himself is standing right before you. The anchor, the true north is standing right before you. You either orient your life to me and live, or you reject me and die. And if you know the story, John 8, you know what they did? They picked up rocks and they tried to kill him. And here's the deal, you'll do the same thing. When, when, when you really have an experience with God, when God really reveals himself to you, his truth presses against you, the fire of God comes close to you, you will either totally reorient your whole life, you will see the fire of God is here. He will, be, he will become your I am, your true north, and, and whatever it is. Again, you might be saying, well, what is God going to use me for? You know, that's why you got to keep coming. We're going to work that out. I don't exactly know, but... But I know that he's calling you. I know what his plan is. And I know it's good. And I know you're the ones, the covenant people of God are the ones that God is using to accomplish this plan. When Jesus comes to you, you'll either say, I am. He is. I am. You rearrange your whole life. Or you'll pick up stones and throw it at him. You'll reject him. What will you do with the revelation of, of God? What will you do with the voice of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that 
by the power of your spirit, by the power of your word, you are still speaking. You're still calling. You're still at work. You're still inviting a covenant people to yourself. You're still rescuing from the nations. And so, Father, I pray that even now you would speak and that we would listen. And by the power of your spirit, Lord, we would hear your call in our lives. We would listen. We'd follow, that we'd reorient everything. So, Father, I pray now with these people, many of whom right now you're calling to yourself, Lord, I pray for a spirit of repentance. Give us repentant hearts. That, that whatever it is in our lives that's saying, I am, I am, follow me, I am, you can trust me, Lord, that we would turn away from that and turn toward the true I am. And Father, give us a spirit of faith that we would trust the words of Christ and be used by Christ. That he would do this redeeming work, renewing work in us. I pray, Father, that you right now, by the power of your spirit, would do that work in this place. I pray all this in Jesus' name.